All right, we are uh, in the middle of Romans chapter 8 in our study through Romans. And uh, last week we uh, began in verse 12 and we only got down through about verse 15. Uh, So I'd like to pick it up today with verse 16. And Lord willing, see if we can make it down through about verse 22. And uh, these are kind of inconvenient breaks. We're kind of breaking in the middle of a middle of the passage, uh, middle of his reasoning at various points. But in Romans chapter eight, you can't avoid that <laughs> unless you want to try to do all of Romans eight in one study. And I don't recommend that. Uh, so, so at any rate, let's pick it up and re- begin reading in verse twelve. And read down through, uh, well, just to get the context, let's read all the way down through 25. Uh, and then we'll review what we talked about last week and pick it up with verse 16. So, starting in verse 12, he says, So, brethren, or so then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, those are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he has already sees? But if we hope for that we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Okay? Last week, as I said, we began in verse 12 and we uh, looked at those first three verses or so. Uh, What do you remember that we talked about last week?
Okay, this is your time to talk. <laughs> One thing we talked about was the Abba Father and how Jesus said he said that it was really the Greek and the other um, Aramaic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Good, yes. We, we talked about that phrase, Abba Father, that he uses there. And the first time we encounter that in the Scripture is with Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane in Mark chapter uh, 14. And, uh, and we talked about how Jesus used that expression to His Father at that, at that intense hour where He's confronting, uh, where, he's, where He's in conflict with evil at this incredible level like we can't, we can't even imagine. And He's facing just the unbelievable suffering that he's about to encounter with a few hours. And it's in that moment of utter stress and, and struggle that he cries out with that phrase, Abba, Father. And, uh, and it communicates to us that, that sense of endearment, that sense of love for his father and the sense of, uh, that he felt of his father's love for him at the most critical point in his life, at that very, uh, very stressful and very uh, tense point in his life. What else? Chris, I have a question on that. I uh-huh. You talked about that being a phrase perhaps to carry forward mm-hmm. in the church, but would Jesus have said the Greek word or would he have said Abba, Abba, and then he never wrote the book said Father? There's a possibility of that, yeah. Some come... But he was, you know, literally gave the word Abba and then said Father since it was Greek. Yeah, th- yeah, that is a, that is a distinct possibility. We uh, many people believe that uh, that actually when Mark wrote his gospel, he was writing the things that Peter was telling him to write. Okay, so the idea really is that is that the real uh, mind, if you will, that is behind the Gospel of Mark is is uh, the Apostle Peter, and that he was he was telling the story to Mark, and Mark was recording it down. That's what many people believe, and so it's suggested. Uh, and this is a possibility. It is suggested that Christ used the, the Aramaic word for Father, Abba, uh, and then Mark adds the Greek word, uh, 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 the, the Greek word for Father, which they translate in our translations, Father, uh, that he used that uh, just in order to clarify exactly what, what he was saying there. And that is a possibility. Uh, that being, yes, uh, Herb. Not the fourth end of his conscience. But there is another possibility. Great. Greek is apparently the common language of Galilee. Right. Aramaic was not well known except among the scribes and Pharisees. There are no extant documents in Aramaic. They're all translations from Greek. Right. All the evidence points to a Greek New Testament, a Greek preaching of the apostles. Greek preaching by Christ himself and it would be natural in that scenario just as if I were to speak Greek it would have an American flavor mm-hmm. not even an English flavor um, and so there are Aramaisms a little loneliness occasionally I'll pop a sweetie for it or, or, uh, or Japanese word you, you just do that to impress us right? When, yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> but the, the there's a great deal of evidence that points to Greek 
Okay, and so what would be your conclusion about Jesus' use of the term in the in the garden? Do you have a Do you have an idea about that? Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. Good. Okay. Well, there are several ways to look at it, but what is clear to us, however, however we arrive at that, what's clear to us is that the Holy Spirit has placed it for us in the Gospel of Mark, in the prayer of Jesus, in Gethsemane, to make that association and that connection for us. Okay, so. Uh, so that's one thing to keep in mind that the Holy Spirit has put that there for us. And then Paul uses that phrase again uh, here in Romans. And, and, and as, uh, as I pointed out last week and Mike just mentioned, uh, uh, there are some indications that the church then went on and picked up that phrase, Abba, Father, as a, as a, as a sort of a or a type of a liturgical way of addressing God in prayer. Okay, so. So it's a it's a it's really a loaded phrase. It's it's a very meaningful phrase, and it communicates this idea of our relationship with God, with Him being our Father, which is really new, as we pointed out last week. The Jews didn't typically talk in those terms, okay? And so when Jesus instructed His disciples to pray, and He said to them, "When you pray, say." Our Father. He was really teaching them to pray in a way that they were not accustomed to praying. Okay, to thinking in terms of God in this kind of intimate sense uh, that they weren't uh, that they weren't acquainted with, or they weren't familiar with. And so, these are some of the things that are coming out as Paul begins to talk to us here about what it means to be a child of God and the significance of being a child of God. Okay? So those are some of the things we talked about last week. Anything else you want to mention that we talked about last week? You'll notice in... Uh, i just prime the pump a little bit here. He says in verse 12, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit... You are putting to death the deeds of the body. You will live. Uh, and I asked the question and we talked about, is Paul suggesting there that it is possible then that a, that a believer, if he doesn't put to death the deeds of the flesh, so to speak, he could lose his salvation? Is that what Paul is suggesting here? Brings back memories of our debate, doesn't it, Herb? Remember our debate on Okinawa? For those of you who don't know, Herb and I go back about 45 years. So, but, so. What, did we, what did we point out last week? You can't remember. Okay, okay. We did talk about the fact that it is uh, that this these verses are in the indicative rather than the imperative, and and so this is it's not it's not to be understood primarily as an exhortation or an injunction, but rather it's to be understood primarily as being a, a state of the way things are. That doesn't mean there's not an implied uh, uh, exhortation in it, but 
But it's a, it's, a, it's a statement of the way things are. In other words, this is a description of the person who walks in the flesh as opposed to the person who walks in the Spirit. And he's not suggesting here, and we went and we looked at a number of other passages. We looked at Ephesians. We looked at Colossians. We looked at First John. We looked at First Peter. Uh, and we even looked at other places. Uh, at, uh, we thought about later in Romans chapter 8. And we even looked at the verses right around these verses here to see that, that the, the person who is in Christ is secure in Him. Okay? So what Paul is talking about here is he's talking about the fact that what is characteristic of the person who is in Christ is that he walks according to the Spirit and he puts to death the deeds of the flesh. Now, if you have somebody who says, well, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, and you look at them and they just live in the flesh, then we can conclude from that that apparently they're not a Christian in spite of what they say. Okay? One of the marks of a Christian is that they walk in the Spirit and they put to death the deeds of the flesh. Okay? And, and so that's the point that Paul is making there. And then he makes that statement in verse 15 about we have received not a spirit of fear that leads us into fear again. So the, the Christian who has the Spirit of God does not need to live in this sense of fear of God's judgment. We have not received a spirit that leads us back into the fear that we had before we were saved. But we have received a spirit which in us evokes from our hearts this cry, this prayer that says, Abba, Father. Okay? So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's, a totally, it's a totally different relationship with God. The person who is of the flesh, the person who is not saved, lives in fear. The Scripture says they live in fear of death their whole lives. Uh, many times that fear is is glossed over. It's plastered over with with preoccupation with things and possessions and relationships and all kinds of things like that. But ultimately, ultimately the person who is without Christ lives under that judgment of God and lives with that sense of guilt uh, before God. The believer, on the other hand, lives with this prayer coming out of their hearts that says, Abba, Father. Okay? And uh, so those are some things we talked about last week. Now, just we're, we're just picking up with that same thought. He says in the next verse, he says, For the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Okay? Uh, this is uh, this spirit that we have received, not the spirit of fear, not a spirit of fear, but the Spirit that cries, Abba, Father, is the Spirit that is working in us and with our own spirit is testifying that we are, in fact, the children of God. Okay? And uh, it seems what's implied there, and, and uh, most of the commentators I read pick up on this thought, it seems what is implied there is, there's, is that that our own spirit, that there is an, that each one of us have, in addition to the Holy Spirit, we have this internal sense. Our own spirit is telling us we are the children of God. Okay? And so we have this, this inner spirit, but that's pretty subjective, and sometimes it's kind of easy to go, well, 
Am I or am I not? You know, this one young woman that we were praying for here earlier uh, uh, a little bit ago that I mentioned that my daughter had spoken with and one of her great struggles was was because of some things that were going on in her life and some things she was encountering, she was beginning to wonder if she was really a child of God. So there are times when we can wonder that. So thankfully, in addition to our own spirit within us telling us, uh, I'm a child of God, I have the Holy Spirit also bearing witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. Now, According to the next verse, verse 17, if I am a child of God, then what? And we're heirs of God, though our heirs of Christ will suffer within the order that we may also be glorified with Him. Okay. If I'm a child of God, I am also an heir. Of God. I think it's something that we don't think too much about. You just sort of air and get all the good stuff. There's also some of the bad stuff. <laughs> okay, that's a good point. We'll get to that in just a second because I want to go there. But, but we, because we are God's children, if you, if you know Christ, if you're in Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit, if you have that witness within you, you know not only that you are God's child, but that automatically going with God's child comes this benefit of being His heir. Being an heir of God. Now, what Paul is developing here is is adoption was not... Remember, we're talking here about adoption because he's talked about the spirit of adoption in the previous verse. So, uh, So... or two verses before. So, so adoption is the idea that's going on here. But adoption was not really a prevalent concept within the, within the Jewish context. Okay, the Jews didn't think a lot in those terms, or and, and there wasn't a lot of that kind of thing going on. But where it really was prevalent in Paul's day was in the Roman context, the Greek Roman context. Okay, and in Rome. And in the Roman Empire, adoption was a really big thing, okay? And, and there was just a lot of it that goes on. There's a lot of adoption that goes on. And uh, uh, for, from a popular, populist uh, viewpoint, uh, we see it communicated in the movie Ben-Hur, remember? Ben-Hur, uh, he ends up on that, on that uh, slave ship, that galley, and he ends up rescuing the, the commander of the vessel, and then he ends up in Rome, and what's happened? He gets adopted, okay? He's an adult, and yet he is adopted, okay? And the reason he's adopted is so that the one who adopted him, I forget the commander's name, the guy that adopted him could bestow on him all of his wealth and, all, and his name and his reputation, okay? And, and that is, in fact, exactly the kind of thing that went on a lot in Rome, uh, not only the adoption of children, but even the adoption of adults for the purpose of passing on an inheritance. One of the reasons that God has adopted you to be His son or His daughter is because He wants to pass on to you His inheritance. He wants to give you His inheritance. So, if we are the children of God, 
then we are also the heirs of God. Okay? Now, the question comes up, well, what does Paul have in mind? What is the inheritance that Paul has in mind when he talks about us being the heirs of God? And there's a couple things come to mind right off the bat. And one of them is, when he uses that preposition of, when he says, we are the heirs of God, does he mean that we are that, that we are the recipients of some things that God is going to give to us, okay? And immediately some things come to mind, like Romans chapter 4, where Paul's speaking about Abraham and his descendants by faith who have become heirs of the world, okay? So we, by faith, like Abraham, we have become, we are going to be recipients of the world. When all is said and done and, and the inheritance is finally divvied out to us, we're going to inherit the world by faith. Okay? Romans chapter 4. So there's the ideas of the, of the rewards and the benefits that come to believers as a result of being the children of God and being the heirs of God. But when you read that and you read that we are the heirs of God... Then you kind of wonder, well, is, was that first meaning what he meant? Or does he mean that God himself is our inheritance? And there's reason to think that too. The, the psalmist talks about, about the Lord being his portion, meaning his inheritance. Another place he uses the word here. The Lord is my inheritance. And he, and he uses that in that Jewish context. We think about the children of Israel. They came into the promised land and God portioned out the land to all the people, right? And he gave everybody a portion of the land. And somebody would say, this is my portion. So, you know, several generations down the line after the occupation of the promised land, several generations down the line, somebody would say, well, this is my portion. God portioned this out to my great-great-great-great-grandfather and it's been passed down and this is my portion. This is the inheritance that I get. But there was something interesting that happened when the children of Israel came into the promised land and God portioned out the land to everybody. There was one tribe that he didn't give any land to. Who was that? The Levites. And what was the reason he gave them at that time? What was the reason he gave them that he didn't portion out the land to them? Any land to them? He said, I will be your inheritance. He said to the Levites, I'm, I'm what you get. Everybody else, all they get is land. You get me. And from that time forward, the Levites had this special connection, this special relationship with God where they got the privilege of being the mediators of God to the rest of the nation. Okay? So there's this idea then that there are the things that we receive from God that are our inheritance. But in addition to that, or even better than that, God Himself is our inheritance. And, and, and so, when finally all is said and done and everything, all the dust is settled from this world and we finally are with Him, there's some sense in which He's going to be yours. And you will 
if we can say this about God, you will own Him in a sense. He will be your inheritance. I can't think of a better inheritance. So there's the things God gives to us, or there's God Himself. But I would suggest to you that Paul has something else yet in mind. Uh, Those other things certainly are included in our inheritance. But in the context of the passage here, there's something else that Paul has in mind, I think. And let's look at that. He says, uh, let me get back over where I belong here. He says uh, uh, in... uh, in verse 17, he says, If children and heirs, heirs, also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. And so what we discover is that there's some sense in which as God's children, because we are God's children, we get the same things Jesus gets. And what are the two things that Jesus gets in this passage? He gets glory. And what, okay. He gets suffering and He gets glory. Because He is God's Son, in this world, when He walked in this world, He suffered. And because we are God's children, when we walk in this world, we will suffer. But just as assuredly as Christ, because He suffered, not in spite of His suffering, but because of His suffering, is glorified. Philippians chapter 2, right? He took those seven steps down in order that he might take the seven steps up. Okay. He suffered all these things in order that he might be glorified. Philippians chapter 2. As absolutely certain as Christ's exaltation and glorification is a consequence of his suffering, so it is for you. Because you too are a child of God. Certainly not in the same exact sense that Jesus was. But clearly, Paul is saying we are his sons. We are his children. And if we are the children of God, then we can expect in this life we will suffer with Christ. Now, most commentators, and I would agree with them on this, view this not just the suffering that comes as a result of our testimony or our witness. He's not just talking about persecution here. That certainly is included but it's all the suffering that we experience. And one of the reasons I believe that's true is because when we get later in Romans chapter 8, he's going to start listing off all this suffering, right? And it includes the things that we experience as a result of, uh, of our testimony or our witness or sharing Christ with others, but it also includes all kinds of other things, famine and nakedness and peril and sword, all the other things that we experience in life. been a week of great suffering, hasn't it? It's been a week of great suffering. And I've I got to confess to you, you know, when this stuff happens now, my head just reels and I just, you know, I just kind of back off and I go into my shell, you know. I just, my heart is so raw 
from so many of these things that we've experienced, particularly in the last 10 or 15 or 20 years, and some of it so very close to us right here in Oklahoma City. You know, when these things happen, I, I have to confess, when, when the Boston thing happened on Monday, I just kind of withdrew. I just kind of put up a shield. So, okay, I, can't, I can't think about this. can't deal with this. You know, so I just I kind of just kept it at a distance. You know, I see the stories in the news about the various victims and the little boy. You know, and I, just don't, I don't read them. I can't handle it anymore. We know suffering. Suffering goes with the territory. And if we are believers, I think, if we're believers, I think there's a sense in which we feel it even more keenly than unbelievers feel it. Because we realize how out of order our world is from what it was intended to be. And so suffering just comes with the territory. But he says, if we have suffered with him, because we are God's children, we will also be glorified with him. And that verse comes right on the right. That statement comes right in the context of what it means to be an heir of God. Okay. So that's the third thing. The first thing about being an heir of God is all the goodies, the benefits we get. Okay. The second thing that I mentioned, being an heir of God, is we get God. But the third thing, and the thing that it seems that Paul has on his mind here, is this idea of being glorified with Christ. Now, I don't know what all that means. In the Old Testament, the word glory carries with it kind of, and, and, and so in the New Testament as well, carries with it this sense of two things, weight and brilliance. Okay? Uh, we use those terms today. We don't talk about glory anymore today in our modern context. But, but we, we say, well, that guy carries a lot of weight. That means he's, he's an important person, right? He's influential. He's significant. Okay? And when we say God, when we say God is, is glorious, we say God is weighty. You know, to put it in the vernacular... He's heavy. God's heavy. Right? Okay. That's one sense of glory. And the other sense of glory, of course, is this idea of brilliance or shining. We use it today in a very tawdry way. We talk about the Hollywood stars. Right? Okay? Because they're brilliant. They shine. Of course, they shine kind of like tinsel on a Christmas tree shines, you know. But, but to us, they shine. Well, that's you know, in a very tawdry sense. That's the idea of glory. Glory is it shines. It's brilliant. And, and when, when Christ is finally, ultimately glorified over the whole face of the earth, the two things we're going to notice about Him is how heavy He is. And how brilliant He shines. And He's going to share that with us. In his prayer, in John 17, he's praying to the Father for his disciples and, his, and, and those who would follow him. And what does he say? He says, Father, you glorify them with the glory. You glorify me and I will share my glory with them. As a child of God, there's going to come a day when it's going to be revealed that you are his child. 
and you are going to shine. Now, I've got to be honest with you people. You're not all that impressive looking to me. <laughs> you know, when I walk down the halls here at Trinity and I pass you in the hall, you know, especially at our age, can I, you know, can, I'm trying to be gentle here, folks, but I mean, you're just not all that impressive. <laughs> you folks, there's going to be a day when I see you when I will go, whoa. That's a child of God. That person is heavy. That person is brilliant. Not intellectually, maybe intellectually, but they, they just radiate. They just shine with brilliance. That's what it means to be a fellow heir with Christ. And that's what we get because we are children. And that has been vouchsafed to us because we have received the Spirit who witnesses and testifies to us that we are, in fact, the children of God. And that if we suffer with Him, we also will be glorified with Him. And then Paul tries to kind of communicate this idea to us by his little discussion here about nature and creation. And, uh, and, he, and he also introduces a, a theme here. He's got a little outline he's going to do here. And it begins here in these verses right here. And it says, uh, the, the first theme is this theme of groaning. And there are three different people or Entities that groan in Romans chapter 8. Beginning in these verses. And the first one is creation. When he's referring to creation here, he's referring to non-humans because he contrasts it with us as believers. Okay, So he's talking about non-human creation. And he says the non-human creation groans. And it's groaning for something. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But there in verse 22, he talks about Creation groaning. And then right after that, if we get that far next week, we'll see that we also groan. Like creation groans. We groan. And then after we've thought about that for a few verses, then Paul's going to tell us that the Holy Spirit groans like we groan. So we have these three groanings. We have creation groaning, we have us groaning, and we have the Holy Spirit groaning. Okay? And so first we'll explore this idea of creation groaning. And why does Paul bring this up? Well, let's look at it. He says, he says, uh, in verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Okay? Now, again, he's talking about the glory. Okay? And he's talking about this glory that we're going to get in Christ. And he says, the glory that is to be revealed, and my translation says, to us. Does anybody have a King James? Yeah, what does the King James say? In us. Okay? Uh, I think the NIV says, in us. 
like I said, the New American says to us. The English version says to us. It's a little Greek word there, ace, and it could be translated a couple different ways. Typically, we would normally translate it to us, okay? But it is sometimes translated, or uh, could be translated to. Sometimes it is translated in. And so commentators really aren't sure, and obviously translators aren't either. Which way should it should be translated? Yes, Gary. <laughs> for it. That's what the Amplified always does. It just confuses you. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I want to suggest to you that I think he's talking about something that's revealed. And the question is, is it revealed to us? Or is it revealed in or through us? Okay. And I want to suggest to you that the better translation would probably be in because that fits the context, okay? Uh, let me look at my notes here so I make sure I cover this right. Um, yeah, in verse uh, 17, you'll notice he talks about... Uh, in verse 17, he talks about the fact that we are fellow heirs with Christ. Okay? So he's talking about us receiving what Christ has received and he makes it clear that that is Christ's glory. He says, because if we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified with him. So there's some sense in which we are being glorified with Christ. In verse 19, you'll notice that he, that he says, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. So it's something... That creation is waiting for something about us to be revealed. It's not something being revealed to us, but something being revealed about us. Okay, and the creation is waiting for that event when, when, when the curtain is pulled back and people see the children of God. Okay, uh, and then down in uh, verse 21, he says that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The idea there again is that the children of God share in this glory. So, I would suggest to you that in verse 18, when he says, with the glory that is to be revealed to us, I think the idea better is the glory that is to be revealed in us. In other words, there's going to be a revelation. There's going to be a pulling back of the curtain, if you will. And when God pulls back the curtain on you people, I'm going to step back. And I'm going to go, wow, that's pretty glorious. Okay? Now, what Paul says is he brings up again this idea of suffering. The first, it first came up when he used the term Abba Father. He says, we cry, we pray, Abba Father. And when you first read that, you don't think anything about suffering until you realize the context and how it comes first from that prayer of Jesus in the garden. Then you start thinking a little bit about suffering. And then a couple verses later, he says, listen, if we're going to be God's children, we can expect to suffer. That just goes with the territory. And now he says... In verse 18, he says, For I consider, or I reckon. This is the way Paul thinks about things. Paul suffered a lot. We don't have time here to go through all the passages where Paul lists and details all of his sufferings. 
But he says, this is the way I think about my suffering. It cannot compare to the glory that will be revealed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he develops that same thing and he talks about his suffering and he calls it a momentary light affliction. In light of, he says, the eternal weight, that word again, of glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, I believe it is. Okay? So, so Paul says, okay, I'm going through all this stuff now and it's really grueling and it's really hard. But what I keep in mind, what I think about, what I reckon, what I consider, is that this suffering I'm going through now cannot light a candle to the glory that's going to be revealed in me eventually. Now, we all suffer, right? And all of you right now are suffering at some level. Some of you, you suffered a lot in the past and right now you're kind of going through a maybe a little bit easier time, but you know suffering, you've been through it. Some of you right now are going through the most difficult suffering you've ever experienced in your life. And some of you, uh, I don't want to be a party pooper, but, you know, it's coming. There's going to be some excruciating suffering. I don't, I don't want to be a bearer of bad news, but that's just that's the reality, right? You know it. You know, you're always kind of waiting for the other shoe to fall, okay? Well, some of that suffering is really intense. Probably most of you, probably all of you have been to a point where you have just said to God, God, that's all I can take. I cannot take anymore. It's, that's it. Don't give me any more. You know, I, I'm not proud of it, but I share it so that you'll know I'm with you on this. Okay? I've thrown my Bible across the room. I've thrown my Bible from the living room into the kitchen and told God I was fed up with Him and He could find somebody else. Sometimes the suffering is just so overwhelming. It just is incomprehensible. And sometimes suffering just keeps going on and it won't quit. It just goes on and on and on. And it goes on for a few days or a few weeks and you think, okay, God, it's about time to lighten up. And then it goes on for some months and then it goes on for years. And we cry out and we go, how long? What are you going to think about that suffering? When you've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, and you look back on that suffering, it will have been to you a momentary light. Affliction. It's just, I mean, it won't even compare. 
And I'm going to, I, I guarantee you, it ain't going to take you 10,000 years to see that perspective. It's going to take you about 30 seconds, if that long. When you've seen Christ and you have partaken in His glory, all that suffering is going to look to you as if it was just, as Paul says, a momentary light affliction. Yeah. Go ahead. Back up a minute. The last part of Ephesians 15. If indeed we suffer with Him, it makes it sound like the suffering is required. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified, so that some of the degree of suffering is required. And I'm wondering what that is. I mean, you're, you're talking about okay, this natural suffering that goes along with life. Well, everybody has that, believer or non-believer. So is there something else that's required of a believer? Waves, what, Herb's waving his hand back here. You got a thought on that, Herb? It is required. Mm-hmm. We are commanded to take up our cross daily. And let me just give you an illustration, and everyone in this room will know it's true. This kid, Jakar, he's a kid. He's a 19 year old child. He is my son. How can you look at this kid's travesty? And a 19-year-old is caught up in the deep things of Satan. And how can you not take that as a Christian person, as a punch in the gut? How can that not dull you over? So you're on your knees weeping in prayer for this kid. And yet you're reading the prayers and some of the stuff of this Oh, God judge this kid. Oh! How can we live there? This has a cry for Christian people that nobody else can understand. And everybody in this room knows what I'm talking about. You know it's true. And if you had a kid that's fallen away, you really know it's true. And talk about suffering going on for years when yeah. your kid's suffering. Yeah. Then it cuts your guts out and lays them on the floor. Yeah. I don't want to be crude, but yeah. it's sick hoop and it's hairy cut. Yeah, I, 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 I just think, uh, and another response to your question there, Mike, is I think that all people suffer, but Christians suffer in a different way. And because we are the children of God. And so when we see these things, like I said earlier, when we see these things, and I've heard some of it, when we see these things, it just affects us in a different way because we are, we are identified with Christ and so we feel what Christ feels when he sees that. And so I think it is, I think part of it is persecution, part of it is a direct result of our testimony, but I think part of it is just, is just, can I use Lot for an example? Righteous Lot had his soul vexed day after day as he witnessed the perversity around him. His soul was just anguished because he was (laughs) <laughs> as a poor example as he was, he was still righteous lot. Yeah, Gary. Sometimes I think we think of our suffering as being our suffering for him. And, and, and behalf, and, you know, somehow we're going to suffer this stuff. Yeah. But it says here's his suffering. And it talks about in Colossians how that we're, going to, we're in the process of filling up his suffering. Yeah. In his yeah. Work. Yeah. Yeah. That's the verse I was thinking of. Too. Yeah. There's something that goes, when there's normal suffering, there's persecution type that we may or may not, some people know a lot about it, we don't know much, but 
I think then there's just part of it that's just, I don't know how you call it, maybe the burdens that we yeah. bear because we hurt. Well, you see, they can't. Because we are grieved or we love and, and we yeah. hurt because yeah. things happen yeah. in the world of other people who yeah. ignore the Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think all those thoughts are good. Pardon? Does it not also speak to how we suffer, you know, like Christ suffered, knowing the sovereign hand of God? Yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, nobody wants to suffer, but the lost man will try to cast it off and even shake his fist at God. Yeah. That actually brings up the last point I'll, I'll make today, and we'll have to finish the rest of these verses next week. But if it is true that our suffering, like Paul says, is incomparable, cannot be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us at the coming of Christ. If that's true, then how should I respond when I suffer? Well, you know, the real spiritual answer is, well, you know, it's no big deal. Yeah, it's no big deal. You know, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, I've lost a loved one here, you know, but it's okay, you know, you don't have to worry about me. I'm okay because, you know, God loves me. You know, that super spiritualized fake, you know what I'm talking about. I think there's a great deal to be said for when we suffer, to suffer like Job. I think there's a great deal to be said. For when we suffer to go, this really hurts. And to acknowledge it. Because when I realize how intense this suffering is that I am going through, when I think about that, when I contemplate that, and then I remember what Paul said, it begins to give me a little inkling of how great the glory is going to be. Right? If, as I'm going through the intensity, instead of just trying to Pollyanna go, oh, it's okay, it'll be all right. Instead of doing that, to say, God, this hurts. And I don't know how I can take any more of this. Abba, Father, help me. If possible, take this cup from me. If that's my prayer. And then I remember, wow, when I get to heaven, this horrific thing that I'm going through will only be a momentary light affliction. What it will do is it will make me under, help me understand and appreciate how magnificent and how glorious eternity with Christ is going to be like. Because if if this experience is so intense and so overwhelming in a negative way and it can't light a candle to the glory that will be revealed in us, man, what a glory that will be. That's all we've got time for, folks. We'll pick it up next week.